one guest, 10 songs, 10 reasons. Music was my first love on Radio Glamorgan. My very special guest today is writer, broadcaster and host of BBC Radio Wales' Sunday afternoon 4 till 6 slot, Roy Noble OBE. We'll hear from Roy and talk about his musical choices and much more besides after his first choice, which is from Funky Lane. All day I faced a barren waste without the taste of water. Welcome to Radio Glamorgan. Roy, how do we find you? Well, you find me very well indeed. Thank you for the invitation. A pleasure. It was a great pleasure Thank to you come for along. Accepting. Yes, yes. Uh, you're very welcome to music, was my first love. Tell me about your first choice, Frankie Lane's Cool Water. Oh, Andrew, that takes me back a bit now because uh, uh, my first job was teaching. I'd always wanted to be a fighter pilot and I was tested by the Air Force for about four days uh, and they'd whittled us down and whittled us down. I was still there at day three and then they called me in and said I'd put down on my initial medical form to the question, do you have allergies that said hay fever so they say we can't have pilots sneezing so I was disappointed but I went into teaching and when we got married Lane and myself I'd just come back from missionary work teaching in England in Bath we got two jobs in the Caerphilly region Elaine was in Labrador and I was in uh, Caerphilly to uh, to begin with I then ended up in St. Hennith but we used to sing that song we used to, because we used to travel together. And when we got to Nelson, instead of going doing the rounds of, you know, down to Caerphilly that way through Austin Manach, we went over the top, over the Nelson Mountain, a mount, mountain road that closed very quickly in winter when the snow came down. But you came through a farmyard at the other end and you dropped into St. Hennith. I would sing the verses and Elaine would join in with the cool water in chorus afterwards. So I don't know why that happened to be on, I suppose, one morning and we picked up on that one. And oddly enough, coincidentally, and not fatally, but, you know, destiny, I suppose, it was the beginning of my love affair with St. Henneth, because I wasn't teaching there, but three years later I transferred to there. And while I was in college, I was asked to go and play for St. Henneth at rugby football, because they were very short. Andrew, they were very, very short. Very short. Big, yes, <laughs> because I was in Cardiff Training College, and it was a Spartan wing of you know athletes and yeah. rugby players. I couldn't even get into the third side unless there was gastroenteritis in the college <laughs> and most of the, most of the boys were down. So I played for St. Henneth whilst I was in college and I confess now to having 10 shillings boot money and then 15 shillings after three weeks just to stay away. They didn't want me to come back. <laughs> but some years later, I, I taught in St. Henneth and a few years after that, there was the 100th anniversary of the biggest mining disaster in Britain, in St. Henry. Mm -hmm. 443 men killed and one rescuer as well. And I was asked to be uh, the host, if you like, of the occasion, where there were hundreds of people around the hill on the site of the old mine. And they had found the um, original hooters that had blown on the morning of the disaster, 14th of October, 1913. And they used that as well, so it's hugely emotional. Uh, and my job was to say the story. The chairman welcomed everyone, and I was to say the story of that disaster and the one that had gone before. And also, I qualified because I played for them. I taught in their school, in the primary school, and also my own grandfather had been killed in a coal mine, and I remember that in West Wales when his body was brought home, and I was about eight at the time. So St. Henry's now stands uh, very much in a, well, 
in a, in a place in my heart, really. Yeah. yeah. Because of all the background and all the odd associations and so on. You mentioned teaching there. Were you, because you went into a head teacher of a primary school as well. Yes, yes. Were you scary, Mr. Noble, or were you lovely and cuddly? No, no, no. I, I, when I was a head teacher, it was the same, same with the staff as it was for the children. One word from me, and they did what they liked. No, but uh, <laughs> no, I, I was a great believer with staff and, and so on in leading Japanese style, if you like, by mm. consensus. If somebody had a better idea than me, then we went along with that one. And also with the children, I, I was a firm believer in, I think it was a Jesuit priest who once said that, give me a child of seven and I'll give you the man or whatever. Mm. And everyone has a, a role, everyone has a right to be, everything, everyone has a, something to offer. And it's something I preach if I go and give prizes out in the valleys and so on. Because sometimes it's hard, because sometimes if they've had, well, quite difficult upbringings, by the, the age of 13, 14, They've, they're convinced about something they've been told, that mm. they are third division. You know, third division, you've got to know your place. And that's not the case, really. Everyone has a role to play. Everyone has a right to be. Everyone has a contribution to make. So I, I hope I was fairly convivial. The sobering thing now is, I'm getting old, because people come up to me and say, you taught me, Mr. Noble, this is my grandson. Oh, I thought you were going to say, this is my son. <laughs> no, but grandson. this is my grandson. <laughs> Your next choice, Roy, is, and we were talking about it before we uh, went yeah. on air, is the delightful Doris Day. Tell me about Secret Love from Calamity Jane. Everything that Doris Day sings, really. I, I think she was extraordinarily talented. She had a mm. wonderful voice. Hugely attractive as a woman. A tremendous actress as well. Oddly enough, I nearly had her on the programme just a couple of years ago when I got in touch with her agent, asked if she would do a phone call. And I had a very nice letter back saying she didn't do anything now because she's about 90 um, at the time. And there was a gentleman from Ferndale who coincidentally had been out in L.A., was walking along the foreshore there with his brother's dog. His brother lived there. And this lady came up and said, started talking about the dog. And then she noticed his accent and said, or asked him, where are you from? And he said, Wales. Ah, she said, the land of song. So they talked a bit about that. And then when she went, a lady coming up behind her told him, do you know who that was, don't you? That was Doris Day. But I, I just think that she had a bit of a, an up and down out of her life. She was scammed right. by a, at least one husband yeah. and a, at least one agent, if not more, really. And she had to work hard into her 70s, really, mm. to make back the money that they'd clawed away from her. But I thought she had a tremendous, tremendous talent. Wonderful films that she made as well. In my secret love's no secrets. Beautiful. Yeah, she's lasted the, well, span of time, hasn't yeah. she really? Still, still a wonderful, wonderful singer. And as you say, an attractive woman. And a very good actress. Very good actress. Yeah, very in all kinds of films. Comedy know. and straight. Absolutely, absolutely. How did you get into broadcasting? Because it, it started very gradually for you, didn't it? Well, yes, it did, really. Um, I, I was a head teacher. And uh, I'd had a sabbatical to go back to university for a year to get a further degree. And I was back in the, doing this course and, God, it was heavy. I was reading books with no pictures in them at all, academic books, and I thought, my, must be another life. And <laughs> suddenly it came up. There it was in the Western Mail, an advert for a presenter on BBC Radio Wales. Now, I looked at the job description, and it looked to me like a Welsh job. In other words, they had to put it in the paper because it was a public appointment. Yeah. But I thought, this is a job for someone who knows someone on some committee 
and who was in broadcasting already, but they've got to go through the motions. So I didn't apply in the normal manner. I did something rather childish, really, but I'll share it with you. To ease the burden of the boredom of writing these essays, I didn't apply in the normal manner. I just sent the BBC a blank piece of paper, blank piece of paper, two words on it, Roy Noble. And then I did it the following day, following day, following day. Kept going for a month. And then I started adding words from Roger's thesaurus to describe this guy who they were missing out on. And then, unbelievably now, I started ripping out photographs of good-looking fellas from magazines. <laughs> like, like we do on, on uh, dating websites. Yeah, absolutely, that's right. And I, I did that, and they said, this is me at Acapulco, this is me at the Queen's Garden Party. And eventually, they rang me up because I started putting my phone number down, and they called me down, and I went down, and they said, there's no job. But 800 people applied, but um, the cutbacks at the BBC, so we didn't fill the job. But now that you're here, come and have a look around. And so my foot was slightly in the door, mm-hmm. and they haven't so far been able to get it completely out, you know. So that's how it started, and I started early morning. But then, to begin with, I, I was still a head teacher, and I once a week wrote something under their invitation called Letter from Aberdeer about four fellas who went to the, the club on a Sunday morning and put the world to write, either locally, nationally, or internationally. I mean, if the government could have tapped into them. We'd have no problems by half past 12 on any Sunday. Mm. But, um, and so I wrote, th- wrote it, and it took about four hours to think of a subject, but one and a half hours to write it, but just five minutes, as you know, Andrew, yeah. to deliver it, yeah. you know. And I did that, and then after a, a year, no, after five years, they offered me a full-time job. But my father was a coal miner, and if he'd have known what I did, give up a head teacher's job to go into the fanciful world of broadcasting. He'd have had me by the lapels. He really would have. But I've been very fortunate. And that's how it started, really. And have you always been a music lover? I have, but I cannot say I'm a music expert. I mean, you know, you talk to Owen Owen Money, who knows more about the 60s than than anybody else about the 60s, really, other than in the classical field. I just, uh, in the classical field, I say to people, you know, who are highfalutin', I say, if I can whistle it when I come out, I will enjoy it. (laughs) If I can't whistle it, you know, you can keep it, really. (laughs) But I like an eclectic mix, really. I I like opera. There Mm -hmm. are areas in opera that you like. I remember Covent Garden came down to Aberdeen because it's a big hangar of a building in Aberdeen. Yeah. And that's where the sets for Covent Garden are kept. In Aberdeen? In Aberdeen. Oh, wow. Not okay. only are the sets, the costumes. So they deliver to all over the world. There's only about a dozen people working there. But it's a fantastic building. And when they came, Covent Garden sent their chorus line down to Aberdeen, to the Coliseum, to just sing two 45-minute pieces. No encores. And you didn't have to know which opera... The, the song was from, but you recognised it as an aria from somewhere, from mm. opera, and it was fantastic, and it was full, so you can enjoy those, you know, and there's the, you know, the inverted snobs who say, oh, it's not for me, opera's not for me, that kind of thing. Well, try it out, you know, and if they made the ch- tickets cheaper, more and more people would come yeah. as well, that's the thing. Your third choice on this edition of music was my first love, from country singer Don Williams and I recall a gypsy woman, which... Although recorded in 1973, wasn't a hit until 76 in the UK. Are you a country fan? I am, 100%. 100%. And, and the th- reason I, I chose Don Williams was, after four or five pints, <laughs> this is the song I can sing. <laughs> <laughs> this is the song I can sing. The second oh, one is The Gambler, yeah. <laughs> and the third one is uh, Little Old Wine Drinker Me. We should have, we should have recorded <laughs> this in a pub. <laughs> yeah. Little Old Wine Drinker Me. Dean Martin sings that very, very well. Yeah. 
But Don Williams is as well. I'm going to see Don Williams in Cardiff. Yeah. And it was the first evening of his tour uh, of Britain. And the music wasn't quite right. So they had to reset the music after the first song. And he had nothing to say. He, he had the Stetson on, mm. as he always had. And he stood there and somebody said, take your hat off, Don. And he just took his hat off. Never said a word and put it back on again. <laughs> there was nothing to say until he, the music, you know, the, the instruments were ready and they'd yeah. go into the second song. But I love it. It's also the tale, if you listen carefully, yeah. of a young boy, well, a teenager, becoming a man. I recall a gypsy woman, silver spangles in her eyes. Did you take to TV and radio broadcasting naturally or did it take time to get the confidence and feel at ease? I, I do a lot of homework, in other words. Um, I work at it. I think it's a discipline that I maybe had in teaching, whereby for every lesson in the early days you had to write doubt for, for the advisor and so on. Your lesson plan, you know, the actual title, mm. you know, uh, the theme, the actual body of the lesson, then the conclusion, the kinds of things you'd use in terms of audiovisual aids and stuff like that, because the, the National Museum had a great department in those days. You could borrow stuffed rabbits and stuff like hmm. that, you know, to, for the for the class. Uh, and I think that was translated into my uh, discipline for radio, really. I mean, I, I've I, I always do a lot of research. Now, for instance, today, I've been preparing for Sunday, having lots of things to say in case in case right, yeah. something breaks down or something, or someone doesn't turn up. So that, you know, if actually we have um, everything breaking down on the computerized sort of music system, I could probably talk for two hours, you know, on various things. And do you do it with bullet points and notes, or do you have a script? No, bullet points. Except for my opening remarks, really. Yeah. I try and have something meaningful, you know, to, to say, like... Uh, you know, if you're at the end of your tether, put a knot in it and hang on in there. Or, you know, don't try and keep up with the Joneses. Drag them down to your level. <laughs> <laughs> those kinds of things, you know. And I, I put those in at various things. But I want to start with that so that people stay with you because mm. that's the time that people go elsewhere. Yeah. You know, and I, I did 23 years of mornings, you know, in two hours and three hour slots. And then there was four years of afternoons in two hours and three And then as we get older, I, I did in the morning on a Sunday. And then we did, uh, I'm now on afternoons on mm -hmm. Sunday, late afternoon. And you never quite know what the reservoir or listenership is like then, what are the numbers like and so on. I am not really a person myself who would respond if I was a listener to constant calls for call us now. You know, yeah. cause, give us your opinion. You know, my te telephone number is Sundays. Standard. Sundays and uh, a particular audience, I think, yeah. rather than a Tuesday or a Wednesday. That's right. Exactly yeah. right. And so you know, I leave that to them because in the mornings when I was on mornings, there was a lot of kind of repartee, if you like, yeah. and a lot of uh, input. But now it's just leisurely. It's a kind of a tea time on a, on a Sunday, uh, and so people listen, and uh, I get reaction when I'm moving around, or the odd letter comes in, and so mm. on. So I know people are there. Uh, and it's, you know, it's quite a relaxed sort of mode. For instance, um, last year, a year ago now, uh, I had a sudden hiccup in my uh, in my me medical history, uh, you know, to prove I'm not immortal. I suddenly had, uh, on a Friday night, a bellyache. On the Saturday morning, I was being operated on for a tumour in the colon. Gee, out okay. of the blue. And uh, I was very fortunate yeah. because they said that, that the pain was not the tumour. 
the pain was the appendix, which was alongside it. So the appendix, thank heavens, was the alarm clock. Yeah. But when they cut what, out what they had to cut out, uh, they said I didn't need a stoma bag, I didn't need um, chemotherapy, uh, they didn't feel I did, and so I was now to be put in, under their care for five years, and periodically you go for checkups, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. When you meet the NHS, much maligned as it is, when you meet it at the cold face, suddenly, and in an emergency, mm. it really kicks in, and, and I could not fault it at all. Followed up by the district nurses who came every day for about six weeks afterwards. But that was a hiccup, uh, and uh, a kind of a reminder, really, that because as well as broadcasting, I I go out speaking at dinners or at various functions or charity events and stuff mm -hmm. like that. I, I pull out of everything for six months or so, and then gradually I'm back, then at another rest, and then gradually I'm back, just to keep the habit going, and two, just to keep the confidence going, because you lose some of that as yeah, well, don't you, you do. really? Tell me about Laura's theme. Laura's theme. It's from Dr. Shivago, and uh, I'm a great fan of David Lean as a director. Laura's theme was just an example out of that, because this was a love story against the backdrop of a phenomenal event in world history, the Russian Revolution. And the scenes in that were tremendous. Now, David Lean was much into that. He did Lawrence of Arabia, of course, and uh, Omar Sharif, who was in Dr. Shivago as the doctor, mm -hmm. was in that one as well. And he was plucked from the obscurity, really. And David Lean also did Ryan's Daughter, set in, in uh, Ireland. And I have to confess, on occasions, there was a two or three year period, I started going to the sites where films had been, you know, set. Yeah. One was Ryan's Daughter when I went to Western Ireland and so on, uh, and saw the place where the storm was and various things like that. I also went, there was a, there was a film called Local Hero. Yes, I from Scotland. Local Hero, yep. I went up there and pathetically, I made, a, <laughs> I made a phone call from that coin box. <laughs> <Did you>? <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> so I did all that. But Dr. Shivago, I mean, and also Omar Sharif, I had this kind of watery-eyed sophistication about him. And then there was, for heaven's sake, Julie Christie. Uh, and this was a slow-burning candle <laughs> for most of them. But when it went fizz, it was Guy Fawkes. Oh. Like. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a, a tremendous fan of David Lean's work. Um, Ryan's daughter didn't get good press, and he didn't do another film for about 10 years, I think. No. But he did quite a bit. And um, those two, Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Shivago, amazing. And the scenes in Dr. Shivago of the daffodils at springtime coming up through the snowy backdrop and the harrowing scenes in the train when they are taken, forcibly taken to, you know, somewhere else because they were upper middle class in Moscow and suddenly their house was habited by about 10 families, you know, in there. So life had changed dramatically and in many cases criminally as well. Omar Sharif was a big gambler, you know. Yeah, he lost a lot of money down in uh, Monte Carlo. He was as famous for that as he was for... Uh... Absolutely. And, uh, well, I shouldn't give discreet information away, but I think that uh, Julie Christie lives in the Montgomery area. Yes, <laughs> yeah. and I won't repeat my off-air joke. Um, <laughs> Roy, it's, it's amazing to think how packed with rich classics Buddy Holly's back catalogue is. Yet yeah, his yeah. career lasted only seven years, and Rayvon is one of those songs. Are you a fan of the song or the singer or both? The singer. 
I could, I could have taken one over about half a dozen here. He was a singer because it was the 50s. People talk about the 60s, and you said famously, you know, the quote that if you remember the 60s, yeah. you didn't do much in them. But the thing is, I thought that the safe, joyous build-up period were the 50s, especially the second half of the 50s. Mm. Uh, and that was my era, really. This was the time, Andrew, that I could walk the common of Gwanka Gerwin, which is a natural place to go uh, to meet members of the, well... The opposite sex, if you like. There was a kind of monkey's parade. Mm -hmm. Men, boys, one side of the road, girls the other, and you had to make that move across the white line, you know, to, to get to the other side. I had probably the first trench coat in the <laughs> entire valley. <laughs> Followed uh, by my, uh, oh, uh, duffel coat. That was a tremendous one. The camel-haired duffel coat. Mm -hmm. But the trench coat was the thing. I'd only seen them on army officers in films, in Burnham Cinema, you know, the trench coats, during war films or something like that. And, and this was part of that era. In courting terms, using an old-fashioned term, mm -hmm. courting, going out with a girl. It still gets used a lot, you know. Does it? I think so, yeah. All right. Well, there was a place to go. It was down the falls. And the falls were, was a cataract of water on a river underneath a viaduct. There were two viaducts in Gwankagowin. One of them never had a railway line on it for some reason or another. It was built but never used. And you went courting underneath the viaduct. You had to go early to get a place. It was really crowded down there, you know. <laughs> Just is a reminder of all of that. And also, I went to Almond Valley Grammar School. There were two places you went to dance on a Saturday night. One was the drill hall, no booze at all, run by the art master in the grammar school, actually, yeah. who is a member of the Territorial Army Cadet Force. Oh, right, um, okay. And, and uh, Mr. Samways. No kissing in there, then? Oof, no, it was strict. But then the other one was the Regal. You know, the bar was on the left and the fight was on the right. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, the buses went at quarter to twelve to various parts of the, of the valley. So you had to be careful. If you, if you managed to spark a bit and offer to take somebody home in the bus, mm. you'd, it's no point going a bus that was going five miles in the opposite direction to you <laughs> because that was a long walk home, you know. So, you know, it, it's all that kind of period, rave on early rock and roll. I was a great fan of Skiffle as well, you know. Lonnie Donigan went through my mind lots of times. Yeah, yeah I liked Lonnie Donigan. I, I interviewed him once. He was a lovely guy, you know, many, many years ago. Yeah. But uh, no, Buddy Holly, uh, it doesn't matter anymore, that kind of stuff. Well, any one of his songs. met both of those, you know. Have you? Yeah, actually I worked with one, Barbara Dixon, a series on television on BBC Wales. I read. It was actually called The Diet Programme. Yeah. And we all made an effort at, at dieting and so on. And M Anton Mosiman from Switzerland was, was the main chef on it, of course. And there was uh, another guy who came on for a while. and uh, Ken Hom, I think it was. I remember the name, yeah. Yeah, he was a, a chef as well. He said, in, in China, we eat everything with legs, including tables. You know, but and virtually everything that flies except a 747. You know, that's that kind of thing. But I, Barbara Dixon was tremendous to work with, and she writes most of her own stuff. And I, I wrote her a letter once, and she answered back from an hotel room somewhere on tour she was mm. in Britain at the time. But she's returned a lot now to some of her Scottish roots yeah. with some of the music that she's she coming up with. She tours still, yeah. Yeah, she yeah. does. She's gone back to that. And in Lane Page I first met in Swansea because I was doing Welsh language television then, a Heno 
tonight was the program, but they had a kind of a, well, a nice balance in so much that if somebody wanted to come on the program or they were famous and they couldn't speak Welsh, they would do the interview in English mm. anyway. And Elaine Page came on and uh, she was complaining that uh, when she was sort of practicing in, in the theatre, I won't mention with theatre, in, in Swansea, but somebody turned the air conditioning on. Uh, and that affected her voice in some real way. But I'm a great fan of Elaine Page as well. I saw her in Piaf, the show Piaf. Yeah, uh, yeah. Piaf. yeah. Oh, what an extraordinary performance. And I went to Edith Piaf's grave in, in Paris. It was at Père Lachaise. Lots of people buried there were famous. Oscar Wilde was one. Was Jim Morrison was another. She got rave reviews for that part. Oh, she, oh, she was absolutely mm. amazing. And I interviewed her sometime later uh, on a new show she was c- coming out with because she, in fact... She's very short, very, very mm. short. She's barely five foot. Uh, and uh, she said she was really struggling and she was about to give it up. I think she met the actor who was in, oh, you, you know, uh, The Graduate. What's his name? Um, uh, Dustin Hoffman. Dustin. She must have <laughs> met him. And he said, come up, to, come up to my room. And, said, mm. and she sort of sang to him and he said, well, you know, she was amazing. There was no hidden agenda. And they were probably the same height. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> but but she was hugely talented. But in Piaf, and I'm a fan also of, you know, Edith Piaf. Hmm. You know, I nearly put down Je ne regrette rien, you know, you as one I'd of never, my choice. You knew I'd never be able to say it. <laughs> <laughs> but Barbara Dixon and um, both of them were, were tremendous, really. And uh, it's nice, isn't it? Because I, I often found, I don't know if you've interviewed anybody here, but sometimes you interview somebody who's quite famous. Hmm. And, and the good people, they look down, you know, you look down the list and they always at the end of the interview ask, was that okay for you? You know? In other yeah. words, they are just as insecure as anybody else. Yeah. They want praise or at least, you know, recognition. Hmm. You know, and I think everyone does. And I think it's important. I think I'm a great, great fan of praise because um, a complaint goes around the world four times before a compliment has time to get his boots on. You, you know, people complain faster than they praise, don't they? It's it's like they say, bad news travels fast. Absolutely. Yeah. There was a guy in college with us a year ahead of me. He had three great attributes. He was a good rugby player, full back and centre for Pontebera Mitzanetli. His name was Molly, Molly Walters. And also he could play the piano. No manuscripts needed. We all had a sing-song in the common room. Third attribute was his best. If he hadn't seen you for ages and ages and ages, if you saw you across a crowded room by coming in through the door, he'd wave and he'd come through the crowd and he'd come right up to you and he'd say, I've been hearing good things about you. No. And then he'd walk away. And you know, he didn't want to know the details. No. He had just lifted you up. It's a great thing to do. We touched on it earlier, but, but I wanted to talk a little bit about your Sunday afternoon show with right. BBC Radio Wales. Someone listening for the first time, what can they expect through those two hours? Laid back. There is, for instance, a quarter to six coach. You know, there was a love yeah. Tell, you know, and time to be yourself, if you like, to lay back and have wee memories and so on. We also pluck out of the ether records that are way back. And we're talking way back warriors and earlier than the warriors, you know, jazz possibly, and well-known songs from the 30s, mm-hmm. you know, uh, then coming on forward through the warriors with the Andrews sisters, Glenn Miller, um, and then coming in Frank Sinatra and so on, and all the classics in that kind of way so it's that kind of music as well balanced with reasonable music we tend not to play music that will take the wallpaper off the wall no i must say having listened that you have a perfect sunday afternoon easy calming delivery well it's very kind of you indeed it's uh, it's you know what we'll try to do you and you've described during my extensive research uh, uh you've described your relationship with your listeners as the wondrous topping on the trifle 
Which I think is a great quote. Oh, well, that's very, it's very kind of you, really. I also, like you, I suppose, I regard the microphone as one person. It's just mm. the one. It's just one-to-one here, yep. you know. It's not television. No. We're not we're talking hordes. We're talking one-to-one here. Yeah. So it's just the one person. That's really. what Terry Wogan said, didn't he? Yeah, it was his yeah. listener. That's right, that's yeah. right. And uh, I think it's the only way forward for me, anyway. At time of recording, Roy, uh, we are reaching the end of the 2019 Rugby World Cup. Right. And for those people who have been watching ITV's coverage will have heard a lot of your next choice, Catherine Jenkins and Wilden Union. Well, I chose it for two reasons, really. One was the World Cup itself, and it has been joyous. It's done wonders for the profile of Japan. Yeah, hasn't it? Because people came back. Somebody mentioned one word today to describe their impression of Japan. Civility. That was the word. Yeah. Yes, civility. And people come back into, you know, near where we live. They've been up for a fortnight, and they say it's absolutely wonderful. There was a couple on television from England this morning talking about the fact that their men had been out for a month and their <laughs> women had joined them for a fortnight. And uh, a pair had spent £9,000 on it, but it was absolutely wonderful. And they'd had the Olympics before on. So that was one reason. It's a pity Japan didn't get to the semi-finals yeah. at least. What wonderful rugby they played. But it does help in, in all sports, rugby, football when the host nation do well. Oh, absolutely. Because the fans are there and getting behind it and the fans will be in numbers because they're local. Next World Cup in France, put your money on France. Yeah. They have a very, very good under-20 side coming up. Right. They are really red hot, so we'll see. And the other reason is with Catherine, Catherine Jenkins. I've known Catherine from the early days from the days before you had to talk to her people to get it uh, okay. She, and uh. she's got her feet on the ground. For instance, I sneaked her a bottle of whiskey because I know the boys at the pistil- uh, distillery in Penderin. She, I know her mother, and I know her mother's friend, the doctor down in Mumbles. She invited Lena and myself up to London to the show. She was with Alfie Bow. She invited us backstage afterwards, uh, and it was absolutely tremendous. And she's always there. She's always, you know, feet on the ground. She always sees you. I find her so anyway, because we knew her from the early days and she's progressed so stupendously well. It's extraordinary. A lot of your TV work has included travel programmes. Yes, it has. John Carter, who was a former co-presenter of ITV's Wish You Were Here, I remember saying once that it, it's not even a working holiday, you're not in these places for long, most of it is filming, but it, it must be a wonderful experience to visit these places that you go to in, in Noble's gu- Noble Guides. Oh, yes, it is. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary, really, because um, there was one series called The Celtic Corners of Europe, and we went to Brittany, we went to Cornwall, uh, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and the Isle of Man. We didn't go to Galicia, we should have, but we didn't have the money. But it was extraordinary. Um, we were not into, you know, political questions at all, mm. just what was the difference between Celts, you know. And I'll give you one. <laughs> For instance, the Irish are good with words. They're tremendous with mm. words. Yes, they and are. they put a challenge out in a pub in County Kerry. The Scots were there and we were there as well. Uh, as They said that we have won so many Nobel Prizes in literature for poems and for prose that we are the best. And he said, for instance, you know, there were poems that he used, but he said one thing, he said, for instance, he said, the Irish man looking at a woman will know instinctively, he said, that you cannot understand a woman. You've just got to love her. And to love a woman, he said, is not to have a, you know, be entranced by her looks, be impressed by how she dresses, 
but be well awed by her sheer presence or the way she conducts herself. To love a woman is to hear the song she sings, and only you can hear it. And the Scotsman then got on his feet and he said, well, we, we in Scotland are just as good as that. You know, we got poems about, you know, love and, and parting, even, he said, which is, is a great sort of sadness. Uh, Robbie Burns was very good at it, he said. A fond kiss, and then we sever. A, alas, my love forever. Had we never loved so blindly, had we never loved so kindly, had we never met and never parted, we wouldn't now be so broken-hearted. We were struggling then because... Our champion in prose and poetry was in the corner on his eighth Guinness. <laughs> and he, <laughs> so he, fair play to him, he got up. Man from Newport, he got up and he said, I got a poem, he said, that proves the Welsh are just as good as you English. And, well, just as you do, not the English, the Scots and the Irish. He said, this is a love poem. This is a nested Vodic winner. Come to me in the night. Come to me in the speaking silence of a dream. Come to me with eyes as bright as sunlight on a stream. Come to me, my fair young thing. I love you above all others. Come to me on Thursday night when Felicity and her mother's. We won hands down. <laughs> Your next choice on this edition of Music Was My First Love is from an absolute legend, Leonard Cohen. Tell me about the anthem. I rediscovered it fairly recently. When we walked into the studio, there was music playing in the background, yeah. wasn't there? And it was Hallelujah, which he wrote as well. Now, the anthem was one I, I really came to appreciate just recently because it was on Sky, you know, about his life. Uh, you know, he had a wild time, didn't he? In, yeah. In Hydra. I thought it was Hydra, but Hydra is the name of the island, of course, in the Mediterranean. He and Marianne, who came from the Scandinavian countries and so on. But he had a lot to say. Now, this, the anthem, he said it took him 10 years to actually write. But there are words in here. For instance, his chorus is, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. In other words, don't give up. You know, keep just facing the trials of life and there will be a light from somewhere. And there are lots of good verses in there as well. And one is, I can't run no more with that lawless crowd while the killers in high places say their prayers out loud. But they're summoned, but they're summoned, they're summoned up a thundercloud and they're going to hear from me. In other words, that's very current. You know, in the mm. politics that we have in this country, isn't it really? It's looking up at them and wondering, my word. I can't run no more with that lawless crowd While the killers in high places say their prayers out loud your penultimate choice on this edition of music was my first love is from Welsh singer and entertainer, the late David Alexander. Yes. Now, I'm a proud Welshman, yeah. but his name is new to me, so what can, can you tell me about him? Well, he had a great voice, but he died far too young. He died yeah. uh, on holiday uh, in one of the Balearic Islands, I think. He just died in his sleep. Uh, and he sung all the ones like, I want to see the Ronda one more time, you know, all the nostalgic ones and so on. But just to put him into context at this time of year as well, I, I very nearly put in, you know, another Welshman, uh, Harry Seacombe, because mm -hmm. I, I, I liked Harry Seacombe. I once interviewed him in Mallorca, and he called Mallorca Dr. Mallorca, because when he felt unwell, he would go out there, and he would say things like, you know, well, I've, I've always wondered, I, I think I've had my feet on the ground, because with my wife, Myra, you know, she keeps me there. When I tried to entice her, when I met her in a mumbles bar, I pretended I was a Canadian <laughs> serviceman. Uh, but he said, you know, how can you be in a position of having an ego? And Myra says, have you had the coal? Have you brought the coal in? You know, that kind of thing. 
She was great. And also another one was a night I had in, in Cardiff with opera, Nabucco, you see, and a slave's chorus in Nabucco and so on. And, and the Welsh get into it. Mm. We were humming. We were humming the chorus in the opera. The audience was. And in the Western Mail the following day says, the opera was superb. The audience was second rate. <laughs> 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 but I very nearly at this time of year as well uh, put in Silent Night, you know, because it's my favourite carol. Mm. Uh, I, I could say Holy Night and so on, but Silent Night because I love the story of Father Joseph Moore, you know, uh, the organ breaking down on New Year's Eve and he went down to see the teacher, part-time composer, Franz Gruber in a place called Obendorf and they wrote it out in an afternoon and it was sung first off on a guitar. A silent night. And then when the organ repairer came up some weeks later, they heard them singing it. And it just went from there and went worldwide, didn't it, really? Um, and during Christmas, you see, there were certain things we did in Bernaman, where I'm from, and I live in Aberdeen now. Uh, and New Year, um, Christmas and the New Year. And at New Year in particular, after Christmas had passed, of course, at New Year's Eve, we'd all wait in the bushes because we went out singing New Year's Eve's good wishes to people. And the local pub, the Derwin Arms, would give half a crown to the first fella and only tuppence to everyone else. <laughs> see, But I never beat Michael Lloyd. He was always there. He was fused to the doorway. But at midnight, we had to wait till we knew it was midnight. At midnight, the church bells rang out, but more importantly, the coal mine hooters all blew at the same time across the valley mm. at midnight to take you from one one year into the next. And it's always a reminder to me. I go back quite often, of course, all the coal mines gone. But David Alexander, you know, puts this into context in so much that it's working man and written by uh, Rita O'Neill, Canada. And my father emigrated to Canada uh, as a young man, stayed there for six years, came back, met my mother, and here I am. But uh, David Alexander, I thought... Well, I, I was a fan of his, and a lot of people were. Nostalgic stuff, I know, I know. But it's a reminder, really, of who I am and where I'm from. It's a working man I am, and I down They say that nostalgia is not a place in which to live, but it's a, it's a country in which to visit now and again. Yeah. You know? And you should, to just underline where you're from and what has made you into what you are. We've arrived at the final choice of Roy yeah. Noble on this edition of Radio Glamorgan's and Music Was My First Love. And Roy, something, I guess, from the pop genre, but made famous by its co-writer, country star Garth Brooks. So yeah. why Ronan Keating's number one version of If Tomorrow Never Comes? Because I like it, really. I, I have it in the car. Uh, and it's a reminder, basically. Tomorrow, don't leave things for tomorrow. Because tomorrow's going to be the crowded, you know, the, the day which is the most crowded of the week. It always is. Your tomorrows mm. are. And you miss a chance. For instance, there are three quick examples for me, really. One was, uh, for some reason in our family, we like to be bus drivers. My father was for a while before he went back to the mine. And I've got a bus license, just, you know, multi-skilling. My son has got a bus license. We can <laughs> drive coaches if we pushed. Uh, and we've done that. The other one was, I wanted to learn the Argentinian tango. Right. So I had lessons from a woman. I was filming on S4C, having lessons from a woman in Temple. Oh, Andrew, she was far too strong for me. <laughs> I mean, when she wrapped her leg around my thigh, <laughs> there was no blood getting to my ankles at all. <laughs> so I had to just do with an ordinary tango. And the third one is underlining why if tomorrow never comes, if you miss your chance. I decided that I've been so busy 
I hadn't seen some good friends of mine for some time. So I sought them out, and two had died. Never let it slip. No. If tomorrow never comes, the chance will be gone. If you want to say something, if you want to do something, do it now. My mother used to say, don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Absolutely right. Roy, 35 years in broadcasting, mm. which includes a Sony Award and an OBE in 2012 for your charity work. Yeah. You're an, I've got to take a deep breath here, you're an ambassador for age-positive charity Royal Volunteer Service, yeah. a fellow of the University of Wales Institute in Cardiff, deputy lieutenant of the county of Mid Glamorgan, a successful after-dinner speaker both here and abroad, your patron of Radio City 1386AM based in Swansea Singleton yes. Hospital, and on top of all that, a very happy family life, which I believe includes an almost 50-year marriage to Elaine. Over um, 50 years. Now. Living happily in a village of, and I can't say this. Sweet guy, just on the edge of Aberdeen. Life professionally and personally has been kind to you, hasn't it? It has. I was met by a gypsy once coming through the Royal Welsh show, a Romany, and she looked me in the eye and I thought she wants money. But she <laughs> says, can I read your palm for a pound? And I said, I get very insecure. Here's two pounds. Make sure. <laughs> anyway, she said, I can see through three things. She said, I can see that you're never going to win the lottery or the pools, but you'll be fine. Secondly, in years to come, you're going to die near a mountain or a river. Now, in Wales, you've got a fair chance of doing that. <laughs> and thirdly, you're going to have a third career. I've been very lucky in education, getting up to a head teacher. I've been very fortunate in broadcasting in all kinds of ways. If the third one is round the corner, it had better come fast. You know, <laughs> age is you know, pushing on a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Roy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. M many thanks for the invitation. If tomorrow never comes Will she know how much I love been listening to Music Was My First Love on Radio Glamorgan, where writer and broadcaster Roy Noble has been choosing ten of his favourite tracks. I'm Andrew Wolfe, and join me again soon when I'll be joined by another guest who chooses their favourite tracks on another edition of Music Was My First Love. <laughs>